Welcome to the SCORE Music and Sports Podcast, where we talk with some of the greatest names from the stadium and stage about the music and sports that shaped their lives. I'm John Adams. In my years of working in the music and sports arenas, I've experienced firsthand the surprising connections between these two industries. Together, through this podcast, we will explore this crossover relationship. All of our podcasts have an accompanying Spotify playlist that showcases the music we discuss with each of our guests. Search for The Score on Spotify. Today's guest is a rock legend. He grew up in New York with music as his driving force. After moving to California, he took root there and branched out. His legendary voice with a four-octave range was one of the reasons Three Dog Night became one of the most popular bands of the late 60s and early 70s. We get to chat with Chuck Negron right after this. When we move, we're better. It's when we stand still that we're in trouble. We believe that having equal opportunity to be active and to play is the way we achieve our full potential. You deserve the chance to use sport to unlock everything you want to be and all you want to do. We start today to change tomorrow so that every girl and woman can realize her power. It's her time, it's our time. All girls, all women, all sports. Visit womensportsfoundation.org to learn more, donate, or shop for a good cause. And welcome back to the SCORE Music and Sports Podcast. Let's welcome in today's guest, founding member and one of the lead vocalists of Three Dog Night, Chuck Negron. Thanks for being with us, Chuck. My pleasure, man. Nice to be here. Let's take a step back and look at kind of the beginning of your career and some sports that you were playing at at that time. I didn't realize that you were a very avid basketball player and very good, too. Yeah, I loved it. It was kind of, uh, you know, really changed my life. Uh, You know, as a young man, uh, I think... Uh, I would have probably gotten in trouble if it wasn't for, uh, you know, being uh, associated with sports and uh, particularly basketball. That's the saving grace of sports for a lot of people is that it saves them from being in gangs, being mixed in with the wrong crowd, doing the wrong thing. That's what's part of what sports does. Yes, yes, for sure. And that was uh, the the fact for me. Mm-hmm. And you grew up in, in New York, correct? Yeah, I grew Went up in the Bronx. Bronx, New York, not far from the Yankee Stadium. And about the time that you were playing basketball in high school, you started uh, the Rondells. Yes. Well, actually, I okay. started the Rondells even before I was in high school. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, yeah. We uh, we started right about the uh, the end of the ninth grade. So, uh, you know, it started at you know, the end of the ninth grade. We made our first record probably our sophomore year in, in high school. Then when was it that you performed at the Apollo with the Rondells? That was uh, in, let's see, 58. So I would mm-hmm. be in uh, just starting uh, just starting high school. Um, yeah, yeah, 58. 58 uh, and it was a, exciting, just an exciting uh, thing to do. And sure. uh, it was a really great learning experience. And what was that environment like to take the stage at the Apollo, that famous theater? It must have been incredible and scary and phenomenal all at the same time. Yeah, it was. One of the kids was 14 years old. I mean, actually, his mm. mother came, you know, came <laughs> along because you know she was she was you know concerned. I mean, you know, it was at 125th Street in Harlem, and 
you know, to be honest, we were the only, you know, white people in the building. Uh, I mean, you know, so when we first came out, you know, there was this great energy. And then when we hit the stage, it kind of went silent. And we kind of all wondered, what the, what the heck? And they were just, you know, just very surprised that these, you know, five white kids were up there. And, um, you know, very wonderful thing happened. We started singing and, you know, just, you know, just not much uh, excitement coming from them. And then all of a sudden they slowly got into us and, uh, you know, turned it around. They learned a great lesson that, you know, that uh, a lesson I'd already learned in sports. Cause, uh, being a, uh, you know, a good athlete, it really transcended uh, uh, all racial barriers and, mm-hmm. and the people, you know, respected good athletes. And that, that happened that night uh, at the Apollo uh, where they, you know, just kind of just cheered us home. Oh, that's a that's a great point. That music transcends transcends race, transcends barriers, transcends everything, and so does sports. It you have yes, respect yes. for an athlete as you have respect for a musician. That's a, that's that's a, that's a great lesson. Yeah, I used to go down to 125th Street, uh, down to uh, well Rutgers Rutgers Park, and watch uh, you know some of the just. The, the great, great ball players of, uh, you know, of the day. I mean, they had, uh, you know, professionals that came down there and all of the great college ball players played. And then the, the local street heroes that were just, you know, unbelievable. So it was a great, uh, you know, it was a great time. And I, you know, and I got to play down there and play, you know, play all over New York City uh, after, you know, after a while because I became known, um, you know, I was, I was an all city ball player, all league, all divisional and, and, uh, you know, so I, uh, you know, I was I was known in all three years in high school. I played at Madison Square Garden uh, wow. for the high school finals. So I played I played in Madison Square Garden. You know, as a sixteen year old, <laughs> I'm probably the only uh, guy that played in Madison Square Garden as an athlete and as a, an <laughs> entertainer. <laughs> That's a great distinction, man. <laughs> I find it interesting that your Sports is what took you west. It's what brought you to California and to be close to the music scene. That the sports was the driver to to Hancock College, where you played basketball. Yeah, so I, I have gotten scholarships, uh, several scholarships, uh, you know, across the country. But my father uh, lived in California, and I, the only scholarship I got was Hancock College. Hmm. So I went there. It wasn't. It was one of the smallest, you know, schools compared to the schools of Utah State, uh, you know, UConn, uh, uh, George Washington. I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of you know bigger schools. Um, but I wanted to be with my uh, my family, uh, the Negron family, that all moved west when I was uh, my sister and I were very young uh, after divorce, um, and. Uh, so I went there, and this school was a, a breeding, uh, was like a farm, a, a farm team, you know, for everybody, including, including uh, coaches. I mean, John Madden was the football coach. You know, I mean, he's a, you know, he's, he's an icon, renowned. Yeah, you know, and uh, there were you know four high school All Americans, and you know a lot of kids were going there because you couldn't play as a freshman back then, mm-hmm. and and if you came from out of state, you had a red shirt. You know, to go to a, a, a school, you didn't really get to play. So, um, uh, you know, the school got your grades up, and everyone went on to uh, major universities. I mean, John Dampier is one of the guards. He went on and played for Miami with Rick Barry, mm-hmm. and he was 
you know, it's just great, great athletes. So it was, you know, wonderful time, and uh, I loved being there. And during those college years, when you were at at Ellen Hancock College and then at Cal State LA, how much time was put into basketball at that time, and then? How much time was put into going to the strip and seeing bands and uh, going to shows and and getting into the music scene? My first year there, I uh, you know I took the music. I was minor in music, so I, you know I was in the chorus and in the ensemble. And there were uh, these brothers, Sergeant brothers, and ended up five of them, but there were two in my class, and um, they had a band. We. Uh, on the weekends, they used to have these uh, these concerts and dances, um, where they're, you know they'd have a you know a, a national act, and then they'd be a dance by the local band. And uh, so I went to one of these dances. Actually, I'm trying to think who I think I, was, uh, I don't know, seeing a Motown review or something uh, there. And these guys were up there playing. I went, oh my god, I'm in my class, and they called me up. Because we would jam, you know, we'd be jamming in class, and they called me up. And we knew a couple songs, so I sang it, sang sang a couple songs, and um, the promoter of the, the concert came to school, sought me out, and said, "You know, everyone loved you." He said, "I don't know if you noticed, but you know, people dance all night, but when you sang, everyone stopped. <laughs> they all stopped and watched and watched you." She said, "I've never seen that happen there," you know, so. Uh, he hooked me up with the Sergeant Brothers and actually saw a couple of other bands. So I just came, come, came like I was a ringer, you know, come in there and, <laughs> and sing for local bands. And uh, I worked with the Biscaynes and primarily the Sergeant Brothers, and we got a record deal. So my very first year in high school, I mean, I mean in, in college, I made a record, uh, Marlinda Records, a very small little label. And then the very next year, I made a record for uh, a, a surf uh, uh, label called Heart Band. And that record uh, hit the charts in Central California, went all the way to Bakersfield. Um, and, you know, I had this regional, this regional hit. So I'm playing, now I'm playing on the weekends, and, you know, up and down in Santa Barbara and up, you know, up and down that whole area. You know, when the, you know, the, now when basketball season was over. And then the next year, um, Columbia Records asked me to come up and audition. Hmm. I did. And it was my last year at Hancock. We went all the way, all the way, all the way to the the state championship and lost to Jerry Tarkanian, who was the the coach of Riverside. And uh, at that point, the record company started getting a little annoyed. We're the biggest record company in the world. What do you mean you're playing basketball? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so that's when, and I, um, as I graduated uh, Hancock. And enrolled at at Cal, at Cal State. Uh, got a scholarship. Bill Sharma was the coach then. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he was the guy that that, uh, that signed me. And uh, that summer, he called me and said, "Hey, listen, I'm going on. I'm leaving. I'm going to coach in this new basketball league. Uh, I don't know if it was it was the ABA or one of those one mm-hmm. of those leagues. So anyway, he you know he left. I started school, and that's when Columbia said, "Okay, you're going to record here, here, here." And it started being ridiculous. Uh, you know, they basically <laughs> said, look, well, I, we, I don't understand why you would enroll back in school, you know, to, you know, to play ball, you know. So at any rate, I, I, I dropped out of school and, and did the Columbia thing. I learned a big lesson. They had, they, the magic was gone. Hmm. 
you know, I didn't hit when the iron was hot. Um, you know, so when I did start recording with them, you know, just some of the magic was, was gone. I could see they weren't as excited as they, uh, they were when I saw them. I made a big mistake. And so I realized you, know, you can't have your cake and eat it, mm-hmm. you know, especially in a business. You know, I mean, uh, I treated basketball like it was a business. It got me through school. It was something I loved, but I was, you know, it was time to grow up. You know, I wasn't going to be a professional basketball player. It just wasn't big enough. Mm-hmm. Um, although if they had the three-point shot, I would have I, I, I would have <laughs> had a shot because I could really shoot. But they didn't even have the three-point shot then. They didn't have 24 seconds either. <laughs> <laughs> basketball was the means to to the end, to to furthering the music career rather than the other way around. Because in, in New York, you were kind of doing both of them simultaneously. Yeah, but the, but the really the, the the singing was the fun thing. Sure, the singing was the fun thing. I never thought I could, you know, I could. My love was really, mm-hmm. I mean, the thing that I did every day, no matter what, was play basketball. I spent the majority of my time playing basketball, so that was my my real love. I I, I loved to sing, but I never, you know, I never thought it'd be something that, you know, that I'd be able to do. It was just too far out of reach for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I just couldn't even conceive it. And it wasn't until I started making records in in college. I mean, I made a couple of records in Rondell, but we were kids, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until college that I I started saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm making a living here. I mean, I'm <laughs> in college. I'm making more money than as much as these teachers, you know. <laughs> and it seems that once Three Dog Night hit, you guys took off like a rocket. So that was formed in 67 with you, Danny Hutton and Corey Wells. What was that like to, to get in the studio, get that first album cut and then boom, you guys were off and running. It seems like it's, you know, right away, but 1967, I'm, uh, I'm on Columbia records. I have, uh, you know, I had a single out, didn't do very much. And I went on this tour, Dick Biondi, the just from WLF, but he was in, WLS. Anyway, he was in LA at the time, at KRLA, and he had put a, a tour together. And we went, and, you know, we toured with, uh, I don't know, about seven, eight acts. Mm. And, you know, I got my chops together. I mean, I was singing every, you know, every day for, for, it was two weeks. So when I got home, I had all these messages from Danny Hutton. And I went over to Danny's and, uh, Corey was there and they, you know, they auditioned me. I didn't even know, you know, <laughs> and, uh, Danny had told Corey about me and, uh, <laughs> you know, as they say, the rest is mm-hmm. history. But the, the first, when we first got together in 67, Brian Wilson produced us. Oh, I didn't know that. Brian, yeah, Brian Wilson was our first producer, you know, we recorded with Brian. We think we got it made, you know, mm-hmm. And we're going to be the first act on Brother Records. I mean, they just started their label. and We've got two original Brian songs that were in the can. You know, ones with the L.A. Philharmonic, for God's sakes. Um, you know, we've got all of the wrecking crew on every session. Jeez. You know, it's just unbelievable. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And it didn't work out. It just, you know, just didn't work out. Uh, the Beach Boys didn't like Brian. You know, Brian was trying to break away. Yeah. He wanted to produce and write. He didn't want to, you know, be a part of the Beach Boys anymore, really. And so we were getting in 1968. 
I had this uh, this meeting with this this uh, management uh, one Reb Foster, who was the program director at KRLA, mm-hmm. was going to meet me, and he didn't even show up. <laughs> but his partner was there, and they managed the turtles and and then Steppenwolf after that. And uh, you know, he said, "Oh God, I'd love to, I'd love to do something with you." He liked my record, and when I met Danny Corey, he had, we work on the stuff. You know, we'd all met Danny. I, I brought them there, and they liked them. And this guy said, let's put a band together. And, you know, we just, we put a band together and we went in the studio. The first album was done in two weeks. Wow. It was amazing. It was, you know, I mean, mixed, done. And, two, and you know, in two weeks, it was like live. We went in and recorded live because we rehearsed, we rehearsed some, you know, so much every day. And, um, you know, with the first single, didn't, you know, didn't even hit it, break the first, the, the, the top 100. Mm-hmm. And then the the second segment went to twenty nine. We were going, oh my God, we're on the charts. And uh, then the third one, uh, you know, was I think number four on Billboard, and then Record World it went to number one. Mm-hmm. And on the uh, Cashbox, I think it was I don't know number three or four. I don't know. It was, it was you know top ten and brought the album, which was gone, had fallen off the charts, to number twelve. So you know, we all of a sudden we had. Uh, Two gold records. Actually, they were platinum, but mm-hmm. back then they didn't give anything but gold records. Yeah. They didn't have a platinum award. So, um, at any rate, you know, we were on our way. But, you know, it, so it, it, wanted, it, it seemed like it took forever. But really, yeah, from 67, we had our first hit in 69. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, but we were putting out records in 68. You also yeah. had this incredible run where, uh, where you guys were one of the top selling bands uh, uh, for about five years there uh, when every big band known to man was was also recording albums, whether it was the, the Stones, the Beatles, Led Zeppelin. You were right up there with all of them. We, you know, amassed more top 40 hits than almost every one of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, 21 in a row. Uh, tw- 20. It, it, it's incredible. In a row. You know, so, yeah, we... Uh, yeah, we really had, and we put out two albums a year. I mean, and that, that in the end, that, that was our demise. We would just, you know, because we're working 200 days a year on the road because we're the biggest concert attraction, you know, out of like, you know, there were three of us, Credence, and, I'm, and the third, you know, changed, you know, the Stones if they were on the road, blah, blah, blah. But we were, you know, we were the actors selling more tickets than everybody. And so we, you know, we just didn't stop touring and, you know, we just couldn't keep up with the two records. We just tried out, and you know, it's a shame that we, you know, we had a management with a long-term, you know, goal. Uh, they, you know, we would have taken off. You know, mm-hmm. Three Dog Night is going to, you know, recover it instead of just going, you know, back to Dallas like three times a year. You know, playing the Cotton Bowl twice within a year and a half. Yeah, the grind must have just been uh, the, the weight well, of it all. Not only that, you burn out the market. You burn yeah. out the market. Yeah, you know, and then how much product can you, you know, you, you know, you can get. We'll get. We're having like two, three hits an album, I and mean, two albums a year. I mean, you know, these, you know, these records on the on charts from for months. So you know, you just burn. You're competing with yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, easy to be hard. That also went to number one on record world, but I think when, that was a, a number four or five. On, on Billboard, and Eli's coming was coming up the charts, and they just passed each other. And Eli, you know, once it became a million sellers, he's, he's going down. Jeez. So, you know, you're competing with yourself. 
Yeah. You know, so it was just, there was no, uh, I, I didn't know that then, but I mean, you know, it, you know, we were telling that, you know, the management, you know, I wish you really, you know, everyone's some couple of guys getting in trouble, you know, this and that. But no, they just figured, oh, you know what, we better work more because, they're, you know, they're going to burn out. Let's just get all of them again. Jeez. As opposed to just, you know, let's let's take a year off, you know, have a rehearsal, couple of rehearsals a week and write new songs and whatever. During this time when you're on the road and you're grinding and did you find any time to enjoy some sports, to watch the Lakers in their championships, to to, to see any of these, or even attend any of these great arenas and see these teams? Sure, yeah. I saw, I saw um, uh, the, the year the Knicks beat the Lakers in six. That's 72, um, I think? Yeah, 72. I yeah. saw that. Uh, I saw the uh, a game in New York, and I saw the last game. In uh, in L.A. when they when uh, when the Knicks won, hmm. um, and uh, you know of course you know you watch it on t- you, know, you know on TV and I was a big fight fan too. I mean it was, that was the era of Muhammad Ali. Oh, we yeah. had our own jet, so so I would fly to, to uh, you know I, I saw uh, I saw the first Fraser uh, fight and then I flew to New York and saw the oh. the last last Fraser fight with Ali and then I saw um, Ali when he came back and fought um, Quarry. Quarry was also managed by our, our management company. You know, the, one of the managers was Bookie. You know, so, you know, <laughs> like, oh boy, you know, it was pretty, so, you know, I, I you know, used to hop in the jet and, you know, fly, fly around and, and watch the, and, you know, watch, uh, you know, sports. It was great. That's great that you're able to take advantage and and actually go and attend some of these 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 events are now legendary. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I mean Ali. I mean he just come back. I'm. I was a big Ali fan. I mean when we were in college, um, we had a game when Ali fought Liston. We snuck a radio into the dressing room, and we were listening to the radio when the coach came in. He went, went nuts. What are you doing? You're supposed to be. <laughs> Getting ready for the game, and what is what is that? And uh, <laughs> Ali's so on. So even you know before he was champion, everyone's you know he just had such a you know such a buzz, and he was just you know doing you know doing so well, and you know everyone thought Lesnar was going to kill him. You continue to tour now, and you've been touring yeah. for what seventy shows a year for the past twenty or almost thirty years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's see, I. Started touring again in the mid '90s. Yeah. Do you still enjoy yeah. being out in front of fans and and being oh, on I stage? Love it, love it. Oh, great. Yeah, it gets better. It gets better and better. You know, it just you know the more uh, the more mature I become, <laughs> the more grateful I am for the gift, for the opportunity to perform. Love, love our music. Love Three Dog mm-hmm. My Music and and. You know, just you know, hold me in a very high esteem, and uh, you know they're very grateful to see me. And it's just such a, such a blessing to have that to offer to someone, to be a part of someone's life, be a part of the, some of the best years of their life. It, you know, it's just a wonderful gift, and I, and I don't take it lightly. And I, you know, I love it. Plus, I try to get better. You know, I you know I 
you know, as you, as you get old, things change, and I have, I have, you know, more challenges than I, you know, than I than I did. I mean, I'm going to be 78 years old, mm-hmm. so but my range is still there. What's awesome to me is that your music transcends a generation. My parents grew up with your music and they love it and they have memories with it. And then I got to discover it and it appeals to me. My kids now know it and they discovered it. So every generation gets to rediscover the music. I'm sure that when you go to shows that you have a variety of different people, different fans, uh, you must have a smorgasbord in that audience. Oh yeah, yeah, and I, I have, I have, you know, guys that I went to high school with. That don't know. I remember when you used to spray ball, and, <laughs> you know, and I couldn't believe that that was you. And finally, they told Eddie told me that it was you and three, you know, and you know, and you know, just just wonderful, wonderful uh, to be kind of a hero to you know people who knew you when you were younger and uh, knew that's what you wanted to do or that you know that you loved, you know, you loved singing. So yeah, and. It means a lot to a lot of people. It's, it's you know, it's a great thing. And l- let me bring up something else because you're also a hero to so many other people um, for overcoming adversity. And I know that in your biography, Three Dog Nightmare, you talked about your severe drug uh, addictions and that you've been clean for so long, but people can relate to that struggle. And I know that that helps motivate and helps, uh, and, and helps other people with their own struggles. Well, yeah, you know, it, it, the book has been through dog nightmare has been a real, uh, a real gift for a lot of, uh, people who wrestle with recovery. It's actually required reading in several, mm. uh, rehabs across America. Cause it's a brutally honest, uh, book of, uh, you know about about addiction. Oh, that it is. And uh, you know, and you know, nineteen sixties were a, na- a naive time. You know, trying to uh, you know, kind of this experimentation and this very naive, where cocaine was the prognosis of cocaine was it was not addicting. I mean, that's how wrong they were. <laughs> cocaine was you know had you know a non-addicting label on it. Of course, you know, heroin was was, you know, the the worst and, you know, not endorsed by anybody. But, you know, when you start opening the door to, like, I think the first drug I ever took was LSD. I mean, you know, it was like just, that's what, every, you know, that's what everyone was taking, you know, the, by Osley and the guys that made it. You know, they were right in the canyon selling real LSD. And I was just an accident waiting to happen. I mean, I'd never done drugs. I never smoked. Mm-hmm. Never drank. I didn't even drink. Jeez. You know, I might have in college one time gotten drunk. You know, just with the guys, just because they wouldn't shut up. Go, <laughs> Come on, Chuck, have a drink, okay? You know, some of the guys were getting high, and uh, Danny gave me some pills. Some, you know, that's one of the opening acts uh, had cocaine and gave us cocaine. The next thing you know, we're buying cocaine and. You know, little by little, and everyone's doing it. So you're thinking, "Hey, look, these these guys are successful." I mean, these guys aren't stupid. It was the norm. Yeah, it was the norm. And you know, I remember at the Grammys and went to the Grammys and went in the bathroom, and there's all the executives passing around their cocaine. And Gosh. I mean, presidents of companies. I was going to go. You know, I was going to go to the bathroom. Okay, that's that's what they do in here now. Okay, <laughs> you know, uh, and it was like. Well, everyone does. I guess. I mean, they're not stupid. They run companies. 
And, uh, you know, it's just some people are predisposed to, uh, to you know, to addiction. They just, you know, they're like alcoholism, is, it's very clear, and it's why they call it disease, because you, if you're an alcoholic, you actually, you, you're, you're just wired a little differently, and when you take a drink, it immediately causes, causes a craving that is only satisfied mm-hmm. by another drink. And... And then it's coupled with the, with the mental obsession, and then when you hit the boat, you can't stop. You drink, you drink till you pass out, or you, you die. You know, so you know, so these the, these things come into play. These uh, these physical and mental issues come into play. And um, yeah, I uh, I was drug out for years and years and years. It ruined my life. Um, it took singing away from me. It took everything away from me. Right. That's all I did. Uh, and uh, in nineteen 19- September 17th, 1991, I went in to cry help uh, at CRI, not Y, CRI, cry help mm. in in uh, North Hollywood, California. And it was the 37th place I'd been in over a period of 13 years. I've been in 37 places. You know, I stayed there a year and got sober. First time I've been sober in decades. And that was it. I, I never got loaded again, I, you know. They, they gave me a great foundation, and you know, about five years later, I wrote the book, um, which I did. You know, I didn't want to write a book, but mm-hmm. I was getting all these requests from people when I spoke. You really should tell you, you could help a lot of people if you wrote about it. Yeah. So finally, finally, I did. So, uh, and you know, the book's still going strong, and and uh, yeah, we have this September seventeenth. I'll have twenty nine years. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, that story is important. And be, being able to be on the other side of it and to let other people know there is a way out and you can get out of it. If I can get out of it, you can as well. Exactly, exactly. And uh, and everyone needs to, uh, you know, needs to know that. And and, and today, the, the, the landscape of, of addicts with the MO uh, of an addict is different than it's ever been. Because now they're, they're people that have had work injuries or, you know, have hurt themselves in some accident. And you have these opioids that it doesn't matter who you are. Excuse me for saying this, but if mm-hmm. you were the Pope and you were given this stuff long enough, you'd be addicted to it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. It's not a moral situation. It's, a, it, you know, it's a chemical situation. Mm-hmm. This stuff is so powerful that, and, uh, you know, so these doc- doctors and pharmaceuticals, have created uh, and, and have killed killed far more people than COVID uh, uh, nineteen will ever do. Wow. And it, it, uh, I just wrote an article. You might want to look on my blog um, that uh, about that whole about the whole uh, situation uh, of the opioid epidemic and how it's just you know because it, because kind of a moral dilemma is connected with it that it's not been addressed. Although more people are dying from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, than, than, than most other things, and probably but more will die from that than, uh, I mean, in the last, I don't know, 10 years, not five, it's almost 700,000 people, yeah. you know. At any rate, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. So there's my speech. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for very much for sharing it with us. I really appreciate it. Before we go, I, I have yeah. to I have to congratulate you on your nuptials. Yes, yes. So taking, I'm a married man. Taking the plunge again at 77, yes? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, Amy and I, we've been, 
we've been together for eight years, and uh, we planned on on get, getting married uh, several months ago, but the, the COVID-19 came, you know, we, all our plans were going to Atlanta or were dashed, and then we, we made another date, and of course, you know, we're still, still in quarantine, and um, so we had our wedding here. We had our wedding here just... We did it virtually, just Amy and I and, and uh, Gary Puckett uh, did part of the service from the Union Gap. And oh, then great. the uh, minister was in the, was out in the street, <laughs> you know, it was amazing. So, yeah, we, yeah, we just we just got married. We we're very excited. Well, congratulations, Chuck, and thank you very much for being on with us. We really enjoyed the uh, the, the time thank together. Thank you, buddy. Yeah, I hope to uh, to do it again soon. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Score Music and Sports Podcast. You can listen to the music mentioned in this podcast by clicking the Spotify link in the description or by searching the Score on Spotify. Please take a moment to leave a review and share the podcast with your friends and family. For more exclusive interviews and playlists, subscribe to the SCORE Music and Sports Podcast now.